Gene Shepard, humorist, after-dinner speaker, and recipient of the Mark Twain Award for started here tonight. I really have to salute that uh, poor, sad Englishman. You've probably heard about him in the news today. You know, the Englishman, uh, his name was Jeffrey. All Englishmen are either named Jeffrey or Dennis. Uh, No other name in England any longer. And uh, Jeffrey uh, uh, made himself up a batch of ginger beer. Now, uh, I don't know whether you've ever... I, I don't know why anyone would make ginger beer. It seems to me, right for starters, the first thing you would do would be to avoid ginger beer like the plague, it's not the same as ginger ale. This is ginger beer, so don't confuse the two. Uh, the, the actual import of it has not been discussed. Uh, Jeffrey, uh, Jeffrey Trevelyan, we will call him, uh, decided to make up a batch of, of uh, ginger beer. Well, he made the ginger beer, and he capped it, you know, put the bottles there, and everything's fine. And then uh, a couple of days after he made the ginger beer, he decided what he's going to do. He's going to open one of these bottles of ginger beer. Well... He did. He he took the uh, bottle opener and he took the cap off, and that son of a gun blew up like a hand grenade. Blew him across the room, and he got up staggering around. You know, it was the strongest ginger beer he ever in his life. You know, he got up and he staggered around the room, and he thought, you know, using typical English logic, something must be wrong. So at that point, he, he decided... He tries to open another one. So he says, well, that must have been a bad bottle. So he tries to open the other one, and this one went off and blew a hole in the ceiling. It uh, blew a hole in the floor next to the coffee table. The TV set toppled over sideways. Well, at that point, Jeffrey got a little panicky. And so he, he, he figured the only one thing he could do, you see, he had, he had 28 bottles of lethal ginger beer. So he's, he, he took them down the basement, see, and he says, i got to get rid of these. So I don't know what made him decide to do it this way, but he said the only way he could get rid of these babies was by throwing rocks at them from a distance and breaking the bottles. Well, at that point, he threw a rock at one of the bottles, and that son of a gun blew up, blew the furnace out of the basement, down went the garage doors, <laughs> and five minutes later, he's picking himself up from underneath the basement steps. I mean, it was a fantastic explosion. Well, at that point, Jeffrey did the only thing you could do. He called the crack elite bomb disposal squad of the RAF. <laughs> You've seen them in the movies with James Mason and these guys. Well, they all showed up, you know, wearing their leather suits and helmets and all that stuff. And they, they drove up with their sirens wailing and the RAF, the special armored cars. They have special bomb disposal cars. and all that. They all pulled up in front of the house there. They figured it was a bomb, you know. 
Well, Jeffrey meets him out in front there by the lawn. He says, it's my ginger beer. Well, at that, <laughs> at that point... You know, one of one of these uh, one of the sergeants in the second in command of the bomb disposal squad, using a typical English expression, went, "Hey, you err, sir." He says, "Well, uh, uh, I mean, it's ginger beer." And he says, "Yes, it is ginger beer." And he says, "I'm having trouble." So the sergeant takes one of the bottles and just to see what happens, he throws it up against the garage. It blew the windows out of seventeen houses in that block. I'm telling you the truth. <laughs> well. Uh, it was one of the most hazardous jobs that the bomb disposal squad has had in recent years since the discovery of a 2,000-pounder beneath Westminster Abbey that was laid by the, by the Luftwaffe 28 years ago. So he, he, uh, Jeffrey, Jeffrey was interviewed by the, uh, by the uh, BBC local correspondent, and the only thing they wanted to know was the recipe for the ginger beer. Which uh, I think, uh, <laughs> which uh, you know, it has a certain relevance. What the hell did he use in it? Now I heard this, and I said to myself, well, you know, a lot of people who live in New York probably don't know uh, the relevance of the story. I think this, you know, it's just an, uh, uh, some kind of a uh, an exotic story that happens only to people named Jeffrey that live in the South of England, which is stupid. Uh, the very reason it's it, most New Yorkers don't make anything. No, no, they really believe that canned peas come from the shop right, and uh, they they don't know they don't know uh, you know that there's some poor little son of a gun grew them peas, <laughs> you know, and he's out there in the weeds and the and the and the hog grass and the corn bores and the pea snappers and all that. And after all that work and struggle, and the wind comes down, and the rain comes down, and the fungus comes down, and uh, the agriculture department comes down, finally he makes himself a cool $4 for his year's work, <laughs> and he finally sells his peas, and they wind up in the shop right. And as far as, you know, the average guy didn't know, you know, uh, hey, uh, give me a can of peas. Represents some guy's life guts. Well, I heard this story. I said, gee, you know, Jeffrey and the exploding ginger beer. Nothing's working in England anymore. I mean, it's all going to hell. It's uh, it really is, and and uh, it uh, it must be you know very de depressing to have it all pop like that. If I can use the expression, you know, ginger beer is an English drink. They they really like it, which may be one of the reasons why England is in trouble. It's a it's a perverse taste uh, to enjoy ginger beer. Is like uh, enjoying bubblegum ice cream. It's just uh, it can be done but only by people who have very bad problems with taste. So uh, I, I'm, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm thinking about this case. He said, geez, a ginger beer blown. And I don't know whether I ever told you the story. Everybody, everybody has, uh, you know, has, uh, has his share of uh, life's golden memories. But one of my golden memories, well, I have two golden memories relating to exploding potables. One, <laughs> one of them... One of them deals with Mr. Selke's root beer. Now, I, 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 have, I have kind of hesitate to tell this story uh, because, uh, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to uh, incriminate the living. On the other hand, I don't wish to uh, incriminate the dead either because you never know about this uh, reincarnation bit. You know, I, I, uh, I, I put it off. You know, I, I just continually say that's ridiculous, but you never know. I have, I have to say that my basic philosophy is based on one thing you never can tell about anything. 
That's basically what I say. For what good or evil, you know. I also basically say, a penny saved is a penny earned. I also say, look before you leap. I also say, nothing ventured, nothing gained. See, I've got all these great original thoughts that I keep saying, see. And one of the things I say over and over again, you never know. Or another one of my great sayings, if you'd like to... Uh, have a great shepherd saying the next time uh, uh, if somebody suggests anything, anything. All you got to say, see, it's a, it's a great, it fits all everything quote. All you got to say is, well, can't hurt. So, you know, you haven't approved of something. On the other hand, you haven't disapproved. So when it hits the fan, and they come and they say to you, what hits the fan? Well, the cheese with quarter pounder hits the fan. And you say to them, I didn't say you should do it. Somebody says, well, sure you did. Says, no, all I said was, well, can't hurt. I was wrong. It did hurt. But I didn't say to do it. <laughs> well, at that point, you're home scot-free. The universal uh, cop-out, Alavet. Now, uh, this is very handy, incidentally, if you're in politics. Uh, if you're in politics, uh, blame everything on the guy that's in. Or well, in spite of the fact that your party had been in for 40 years prior, when Rome fell, blame it all on the last one. <laughs> I mean, that's that's uh, that's known. Now, if on the other hand, uh, the guy that's in happens to be of your party, you blame nothing on him. You say he inherited all that bad stuff. So, in any in any event. Evading responsibility is a major American art form. It should be made an Olympic event. Uh, I really believe, you know, free-form evasion of responsibility, team tag evasion, uh, that's the corporate evasion, you know. <laughs> and, uh, of course, then you could, have, you could have individual school figures where the, uh, where the, uh, where the great uh, evader, uh, you know, in the peak, pink of condition comes out into the arena, and, and does his own version uh, of, of evasion right there in front of Howard Cosell and ABC and the whole thing. Well, yes, uh, philosophical Olympics are uh, no different than uh, a lot of stuff that's going on today anyway. Uh, you know, mental jujitsu. Oh, yes, that's basically what uh, political campaigning is. If you can get a lethal chop to your opponent's Adam's apple and one fell chop, <laughs> down he goes. Now, it doesn't have to be logical. I mean, in fact, if it's logical, you will confuse the voters. The average person's logic is roughly about that of a chicken. However, uh, you know, uh, I, I just wonder whether or not uh, any of you get the same curious uh, sense of uh, time warp that I occasionally get. Time warp, well, what that means is uh, have you ever watched a television show? See, you, you got the TV set on for one reason or another. You know, very few television shows any longer are watched because you want to watch TV. I think people watch late, late movies that come on, like Channel 2 at 4 o'clock in the morning, merely to occupy the last small vestiges of their mind while they contemplate their blasted lives. <laughs> I mean, for what it's worth... <laughs> I mean, nobody can actually sit there and watch the 4,928th rerunning of a segment of I Love Lucy to enjoy it. No conceivable way. And so uh, I, I uh, 
No, I, I'm, uh, I think one of the sad things about people today is uh, is their taste is so bad. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it was a bad show in the first place, and it's a bad show now. So uh, it's even worse. Uh, but again, you can't argue with people? No, sir, because in, in this democracy, uh, it is believed firmly by many, many people that the greatest delicacy available today is a Big Mac. So what are you going to do with that crowd? I mean, <laughs> and you know what's the saddest thing? The people with intellectual pretensions are the ones whose tastes have gone down the drain. Yes, I'm afraid that's true. And uh, because it's considered in to dig bad taste. Hence, bad taste is in the saddle. I mean, you know, it makes a very nice, very nice... Uh, uh, equation. However, uh, you know, that's not our uh, function here, the, you know, the editorial function. Uh, you'll have to editorial it for yourself. However, uh, I, uh, I, I talk about time warp. I mean, you're sitting there watching TV, see, and, and uh, before you can get to the knob, on comes a rerun of a, a show that was big, you know, like in, say, 1958. And you hear all them people laughing, you see. Do you ever get the sense that three quarters of them are already gone to meet their maker? Uh, those, uh, those, those insane laughers. Half of the actors are dead. The writer has been chased to Peru because of his alimony payments, and he's been in hiding for a hundred years. And here you are watching this ancient, and you hear somebody going, <laughs> and what's sad, even sadder about it, is that he didn't laugh at that show. You know, the laughter was dubbed in. The chances are... Ver you know, I wonder if a guy who goes to a show... You, you know, I'm serious. I wonder if a guy who goes to a show, a, a television show, let's say he, he gets a ticket see, to see Ningbat uh, uh, Magoon, the new dynamic Yugoslavian ethnic detective. All right, he gets... He gets, uh, you know, he goes to this uh, this show there, scene, and uh, everybody laughs at the at the gags. You know, they hold up the signs and they laugh like hell. See, so then they record the laughter, and five minutes later they dub it into a show that this guy can't stand. Not only that, never saw it before, and other people recognize his laugh. They say, they say, Charlie, what are you doing there, laughing at the at that uh, that chowderhead show? Can he sue? People for misusing his laugh? Well, how do you say yes? What do you know about that? Get out of here. So he does it. The, the, the thing is, <laughs> the, that, the time warp, you see, and, and uh, it's very disturbing. I, I think one of the reasons why people have a real hang-up in time, on time in our, in our country. Our country has the greatest time hang-up probably in the history of the world. I mean, we're hung on time. Well, we are very much hung on time. Time of all types. For example, it's only in America that every 18 seconds all the radio stations give you the time to the exact second. Only in America. You can listen to Paris radio for 100 years and they never mention what century it is. <laughs> and we have got a hang-up on two things in this country that just don't stop. Time and weather. No, not traffic. You can go out of this, you can go out of, listen, no, that's not true. You can drive around the country, and you can hear no traffic reports in millions of cities. But time, forget it. 
time. Some guy's living in a farm up in Ogden, Utah, where they ha had nothing's changed for 400 years, but his radio's telling him what time it is to the second. Second, second, second. The second. Second, 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 second. And he feels better for it. <laughs> Which makes it even funnier. Now, on the other hand, we're we're both fascinated by time. We've got to hear it. See, we've got to know what time it is all the time. Uh, and uh, we've got to know. But the other, on the other hand, we're the most fearful of time of any people that have ever existed. Oh, yes, very fearful of time. Uh, so Americans tend to uh, get so afraid of time that they don't want it to be known by their fellow Americans that they could actually remember last Wednesday because that shows they have gotten older. <laughs> I mean, you know, if you can remember last Wednesday, that's pretty bad news because then you may be able to remember last year. And if you remember last year, you're in trouble, real trouble, in a, in a, in a country where time is the great enemy. Time is a terrible enemy, uh, only in this country. By the way, time in other countries is looked upon as the great friend. Hence, how do you think such an expression as time heals all wounds comes about? We wouldn't consider that. In fact, in America, you would say, time inflicts all wounds. That's the American view of it, which is tragic. <laughs> really sad, because time is as inescapable as gravity, the sky, sand. Oh, you can escape gravity only momentarily. Momentarily. I don't care if you fly around the world five, ten, a thousand times. you got to come down one day. There's no way. Even that which is in orbit comes down. Either that or burns up, which is even worse. <laughs> so the, 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 the problem of time you know, is always with us. It's, uh, it's always there. And so when you get this, only in America, I think one of the reasons why we have that way is that we are the only country in the world that endlessly re-examines our past. through the medium of old movies. They don't look at old movies in India, how movies were, you know, of, of, of Indian uh, you know, movies that show how India was in 1937. Well, they have them. No, I'm sorry. See, it's always assumed they don't do that because they don't have all the great advantages we have. They have no interest in it. So it's, it's, it's only here in this... <laughs> In this time-haunted crowd, have you noticed that, 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 that the time-haunt business uh, has caused some curious things? Some people, for example, their favorite movie star is somebody who's dead and been dead 20 years. That's a sad thing. That is really sad. That's truly sad. I mean, you know what this can lead to? what they call the Egyptian complex. Until ultimately, yes, you know, oh, ultimately the Egyptians in the, in the early dynasties became so afraid of time and death that they became haunted by it, and then ultimately that's all they thought about. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, have you seen any pyramids growing out in Paramus lately? Well, you will. Just, just keep. Oh yes, you will. What do you think the World Trade Center is? 
it's a totally impractical building. It's a great pyramid. And I and I and, and yes, pyramids were considered practical during the Egyptian days. Very practical. Or did you think they just built them because they didn't have anything to do? No, no. A pyramid was considered a very practical thing to build in the days when it was being built. And I think that uh, that many of our things that we're building are in the same because it seems very practical to us to build a twelve million uh, story building. <laughs> I mean, and, and you know, stretches nine miles into the air. Uh, we think it's very practical. Well, it also is a symbol of our greatness. It was during our time that we created that monster. So, uh, you know, it's very important, uh, it's symbolic. But, that you know, everybody tries in his own way to achieve immortality and to, to defeat time. Did I ever tell you about the time that, that Selkie's root beer blew up? Same problem. It's all connected. Don't you realize that canning vegetables is, a, is an attempt to cheat time? Of course it is. It's it's an attempt to put off what should have been done today, <laughs> I mean, like eating the fresh peas. <laughs> so you you put it off till next year, and and of course eventually, just like uh, Jeffrey Trevelyan, it starts blowing up in the basement. You got to call a bomb squad. But I've never seen fresh peas blow up. <laughs> so you know it's a it's a. You know, you get you get deeply involved in this uh, kind of metaphysical musing, and uh, the, in that way lies madness. I'll tell you, in, in that way, it does not like big ratings. No way. Oh no, you start thinking beyond, let's say, the third uh, point of reference in a syllogism, and you've already left three hundred percent of the audience behind, right there. Uh, that's why politicians can say that what they do. There's very little logic in people's minds. So it says, do you realize that our country is living now in the greatest recession in the past 40 years? And are you going to tell me that the people that are in Washington today are going to do anything about it? I will look at... No logic whatsoever in the remark. <laughs> But it makes sense to a lot of people. So what? See, I think it doesn't really matter. I mean, because uh, uh, that's another thing that Americans have. We we share we share this with a few people in the world, and that is the belief that if we elect the right guy, it'll all begin to work. Well, <laughs> that that uh, that presupposes that whoever's in can control everything. A recognizable and astounding fallacy, <laughs> and so, and, and of course, also too, uh, this is one of the reasons too why why often people get mad at doctors when Uncle Fred gets cancer. I mean, uh, uh, also it, it leads to this kind of illogic. Well, I'll tell you this: if we can send, if we can send the guy to the moon, why can't we do nothing about them potholes on Fordham Road? have nothing in common. Nothing whatsoever in common. It's just like the... the you know, how many times you heard people say, what a stupid world we live in, we can send guys to to the moon, and we can send those little things up to, the, to, to Mars, and we can't cure the cold. I got a cold now that I can't get rid of, and they can't cure the cold. 
never wanting to accept the fact that the cold is infinitely more complex than sending anything to Venus. <laughs> I mean, damn right it's right. And, and, and I might also add, economic recession and depression is economically far more subtle than a simple solution. And nobody wants to accept that. Because they hear some politicians say, What I intend to do is give jobs for everybody in the world. I intend to put them all on the government payroll. And then how can we have, how can we have unemployment if everybody's working for the government? And on top of that, we will be able to reduce the taxes. Because everybody who's working for the government, they don't pay taxes. And so... <laughs> Of course, that completely ignores the Arabs and the oil embargo and all the rest of it. Well, of course, my Aunt Clara had the same problem. In fact, I'll tell you, this was one of the great scandals in our, in our family. An under-the-cover, non-spoken scandal. Well, everybody has an aunt, or at least everybody out in the area that I come from has an aunt. Here they have aunts. Now, uh, everybody has an aunt of one type or another who cans. Now, not here in this area. No, no. No, not in this area. They don't do anything in this area. So anything that we tell you about life does not bear any relevance to anything that is done in the New York City area, where almost everything is vicarious. All vicarious. In fact, uh, <laughs> I mean, uh, everything has gotten to be vicarious in New York. Sex. I know married couples, no, who have now begun to seriously believe that sex is going to a Swedish movie festival. And they do. They, they do it once a week. They go to a Swedish movie festival in some place called Cinema 12. And uh, that's called sex. So, I mean, <laughs> we're getting very complex here, aren't we, gang? So uh, the vicariousness uh, of, of uh, life here is, is now considered the way, it's the way it should be. The, the life should be vicarious. Because if it's real, it can cause a lot of problems. Cold sores, all kinds of problems. So, uh, we don't want that. So, uh, my, my Aunt Clara, see, nevertheless, she, she, uh, now by the way, lived in Chicago. She was not a farm lady. She lived in Chicago. Now, uh, Chicago is hardly, uh, Tompkins Corners. Uh, Chicago is a very large place, and they have, you know, buildings where people live over other people, and they have upstairs and downstairs neighbors, and they have, fist fights in the street and guys that steal cars and they have riots and all that jazz. Well, my Aunt Clara suddenly got the idea that she wanted to can beets. Beets, beets. She likes beets. Uh, she does not like bagels. You do. Now, she likes beets. So, <laughs> so nevertheless, she went out and, and she got herself a, 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 a bushel basket full of beets. Now, not many people have bought a bushel basket of beets in their life. And so she did. She bought these beets. Well, she brought them home, and this was so, you know, I was a, I'm a kid. See, I heard about Aunt Clara's uh, beets she was going to can. Now, she was going to can pickled beets. It's very different than just canning plain beets. You know, you put little pieces of onion in them and cloves and stuff and all that stuff and vinegar. And so she was cooking up these beets in a great big tub, like a wash tub. She's cooking the beets. And... Uh, my mother, who was at that time, uh, you know, a mother type, uh, they they all went over to help Aunt Clara can the beets. Well, I might say this 
eventually cause one of the great rifts in the family. Uh, it, uh, you know, all families break up eventually over very small things that appear small on the surface, but ultimately can rend asunder. In lifetimes, ages, and generations. Yes, because my Aunt Clara made the beets. Well, now, she just didn't make beets. She made one bushel basket of beets, and she found she liked making beets. At which point, she went down and got another bushel basket full of beets. She enjoyed making beets. It's like people who enjoy knitting. Eventually, they inundate the world with rotten-looking scarves which no one wears, and it gets very embarrassing to get a scarf from somebody who's knitted it yourself. You can't throw it away, but then uh, you can't wear it. Not if you're a human being. And so my Aunt Clara made in one fall semester six bushel baskets of beets. Do you know how many jars of ball canned beets that is? All I can tell you, her entire spare bedroom was filled with canned beets. Well, now, why did she can the beets? She kept saying, well, it's for give to other people. She lived alone. She could not eat six million pounds of canned beets. Well, from that minute on, and for three consecutive years, every time my mother went to Aunt Clara's house just to say hello, she got two jars of canned beets to take home. So there was only one thing she could eventually do, stop seeing Aunt Clara, which is what all of Aunt Clara's friends and relatives did, ultimately. And ultimately, Aunt Clara sat in her apartment night after night with the canned beets for company. Until the day that the canned beets began to blow their tops. I hesitate to tell you the rest of the story because the first three of them that went off, the rumor began to, ex to, to... She lived in an apartment, by the way. The rumor began to develop throughout the entire apartment building that my Aunt Clara was making beer in her bathroom. And she was a white-haired lady with rimless glasses because fermented beets that blow up and spray the ceiling with beet juice smell very much like bad homemade beer and it was drifting up and down the air shafts Aunt Clara was asked to leave by the authorities and it's been an unspoken tragic rumor in the family that maybe she was making beer you've been listening to Gene Shepard humorist, author and recipient of the Mark Twain Award for 1976